0: Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, President Biden hints at declaring a climate emergency. This is an emergency, an emergency, and I will, I will look at it that way. We'll look at what it means and what it says about the state of our nation.
1: The emergency here is that we're having a breakdown of representative government.
0: We'll look at an attack on another elected official, Congressman Lee Zeldin of New York, who's currently running for governor of the Empire State.
2: The only reason why he got charged and arrested again was because I'm a member of
0: Congress. And we'll hear from the author of the book Analog Church with a helpful warning on our increasing digital lives.
3: I found myself spiraling into the vortex of the comparison loop, and it began breeding contempt in me. All this and
0: more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland in my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with President Biden and his recent declaration that we are in a climate state of emergency. The announcement came just before his bout with COVID. The president spoke before a carefully chosen, bleak ecological background, an inactive coal fired power plant in Massachusetts. Climate change is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. So, my message today
4: is this since Congress is not acting as it should, and these guys here are, but we're not getting many Republican votes, this is an emergency. An emergency. And I will. I will look at it that way. I said last week, and I'll say it again loud and clear. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat
0: the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action. Notwithstanding their incredible action. The president stopped short of claiming emergency powers, at least at this point. He made very clear, however, that he's going to take executive action to address the crisis he sees. Katie Tubb of the Heritage Foundation has layer upon layer of concern with what we're seeing unfold. She was a guest of Don Crow, my colleague in Washington, D.C., on WAVA. May its naivete on my part, but
4: I think uh, it's a fair question. Does this president, administration, and these climate disciples, I'll call them, uh, do they have any awareness that most of the world's not going to play the game, that this is going to be primarily a burden shouldered by the United States?
1: Unfortunately, I think this administration continues to think that they can persuade the world to give up affordable, reliable energy, Um, and especially so from countries like China and India that are still struggling to get their people any kind of semblance of energy. But no, I I don't think this administration is connected with reality. And I think it's unfortunate because 80% of the energy Americans use comes from coal, oil, natural gas. 90% of our transportation fuel comes from Oil And so these are energy resources that directly impact our daily well-being, our ability to live prosperous, productive lives. And unfortunately, this administration isn't grounding their policy agendas with that kind of reality in mind.
4: And would you agree, Katie, as well, that it really is the dirty little secret they don't ever want to acknowledge that, in fact, the whole electric vehicle uh, direction and the windmills and all that, but especially the electric cars that they're trying to force us all into, that those are not possible without a backdrop of fossil fuels to help create the batteries and everything else. Am I right or not?
1: You're right. uh, You need fossil fuels not only to create them, but to be the backstop when wind and solar don't work. And when you plug something into the wall, like an electric vehicle, a lot of the times what you're using is coal and natural gas power.
4: Uh, Early in your column, you also noted that the president, I'm quoting, stopped short of invoking national emergency powers to achieve his climate agenda, as rumored, while promising more regulatory and executive actions to come. Uh, What are some of the most serious and disconcerting implications? should he invoke national emergency powers to get where he is so determined to go? What would that look like if he were to uh, take that step?
1: Well, you know, the president does have power to uh, pull back exports of crude oil and natural gas. So I think that'd be one of the, the tools he could use. Certainly, the president has a lot of power when it comes to federal lands and permitting for oil and gas activities, um, and I think... We can expect to see a continuation of the regulatory agenda that we've already been living under, which is a lot of regulatory burdens put on coal oil, natural gas from financing all the way through to consumer use and I, I would expect the President would just expedite and accelerate you know those regulatory activities.
4: You also wrote, Katie, that whether to appease activists who want more or to lay the groundwork for future action, Biden also used the occasion to make the case as to why he's entitled to act unilaterally without Congress. Take us into that claim and some others that are part of his grandiose plan.
1: Well, President Biden, I think, used a lot of inflationary language to drum up um, alarm about climate. And I think, you know, certainly there's a lot of disagreement in our country and around the world about climate and the nature and pace of warming. Uh, but President Biden, I think, used stats and quotes Tend more towards the top line op ed form of alarmism that I don't think is helpful for the conversation. To me, the emergency here is that we're having a breakdown of representative government. And that's why I find uh, President Biden's behavior, his speech, so concerning. um, That he basically said Congress isn't doing what I want it to do. I think climate is an emergency. Therefore, I will act regardless of checks and balances in the government, as we've all agreed to in the Constitution. And to me, you know, no matter what you think about climate, that's the emergency, because that's not a sustainable way to govern, let alone a a comfortable way to live in a country where there is disagreement.
4: And, of course, uh, we're being told that all the climatologists and all the true scientists agree that we are in a code red situation, which is now a phrase that you also reference in the column. Uh, The uh, uh, apocalyptic language really has polarized the American people and, of course, In my view, the mainstream media has been complicit. What's your assessment of uh, the importance of language and being honest about what we're talking about versus ignoring those other scientists and persons like yourself who say, look, this is much ado about nothing compared to the, as I say, apocalyptic scale that we're being told we are on the threshold of uh,
1: seeing? Well, it matters because I think we all know what it looks like to misdiagnose a problem you're pushing in the wrong direction, you're going to do a lot of harm, and you're going to miss opportunities to actually solve problems. And to me, that describes the climate conversation. Another way to look at this is what uh, Americans lived through over the last two years with how we talked about uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. You know, the the government at state and federal levels drummed that up. It removed debate, uh, and it forced decision-making and solutions in one direction, that had a lot of collateral damage. Uh, The climate conversation has been the same, and it's been that way for much longer than the COVID conversation, uh, that we've politicized science and we've scientized politics, and in a way removed any kind of accountability and responsibility for political decisions that have been made by hiding behind science that is very contested. And, you know, this administration makes it sound like the debate is over, but, I don't think the debate is over, certainly not in the realm of, are we headed towards a catastrophe for which I think there's a lot of very reasonable discussion yet to be had.
0: If there is a breakdown in governance with the Biden administration's efforts on the climate, we have another breakdown in governance with crime today. In urban area after urban area, we're seeing a rise in crime, everything from shoplifting and vandalism to violent crime, including murder. All crime is a threat to our way of life. But violence directed at our leaders is a more immediate attack on democracy itself. We saw it in a planned effort to kill Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh. And then we saw it again with an effort to stab New York Congressman Lee Zeldin. Zeldin was speaking at a VFW event in Fairport, New York, when the assailant approached him. There's only one option. (laughs) The congressman and gubernatorial candidate was a guest of Kevin McCullough
5: on AM 570, the mission in New York City. The minute that this happened, uh, I could not help but understand the irony that there you are talking about bail reform and the out-of-control crime in New York State, and on that very moment that you're mentioning those very words, uh, a man rushes the stage and does what he did. Bring us up to speed on your thoughts from that moment, but also as you've reflected on it uh, on this past weekend.
2: As you pointed out during my speech, I'm calling for appeal of Castles Bail, as well as a number of other important, common-sense, obvious solutions that would make life in New York safer. I had just released our first general election campaign ad right before the rally where I was talking about the need to repeal cashless bail and critical of Alvin Bragg and and Kathy Hochul and the Alba case. And then this attacker ends up released within six hours on cashless bail. Right after this attack took place – I said publicly, I mean, it's it's uh, you know a comment that was made right out of the gate by me that this person should not be released on cashless bail. Right. And fortunately, two days later, you see a federal charge come in. But the only reason why he got charged and and arrested again was because I'm a member of Congress. And if I wasn't a member of Congress, then. There would be no federal charge, and the federal charge is a more serious charge than what was charged at the state local level. But it's worth pointing out that the charge at the local level was a felony assault charge, Right, felony assault, and he was still not bail eligible.
5: Lee, this highlights everything that you and I have talked about when it comes to the crime problem in New York State. What has been the response from the public as you've had a few events uh, since that day. Do you sense that New Yorkers are as distraught about this as you are? I
2: I find that New Yorkers all across the state are distraught. You wake up on a Monday morning, and they read headlines of crimes over the course of the weekend. And the average New Yorker is aware of why this is happening. This isn't some great mystery. They're also aware of exactly what needs to be done to fix it, which makes them even more frustrated that this current alignment of one-party Democrat rule with pro-criminal policies that are getting advanced and more pro-criminal policies that they want to get done in January if they can keep their power up in Albany. And I find that New Yorkers, if they're riding the New York City subway, they have to hold onto a pole or a a gate at the stairs because they're afraid of getting pushed into oncoming traffic. People who are, they they don't even come travel to New York City. They had a long plan. They wanted to come. Whatever their reason is, then they're canceling the trip. I mean, there's so many different ways to measure the massive impact. and, And average, everyday New Yorkers are infuriated
0: by it. Coming up... The author of the book, Analog Church, with a helpful warning on our increasingly digital lives.
3: I found myself spiraling into the vortex of the comparison loop, and it began breeding contempt in me.
0: The Christian Outlook returns in a moment.
5: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences to understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics and to test them quantitatively requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu/spp. That's pepperdine.edu/spp.
0: Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Today we are bound and beholden to our digital devices. We carry them pretty much everywhere. We're checking them, at least too many of us, all the time. And we're using the social media apps on these devices to stay, well, connected to friends and family in our lives. The trend started well before the pandemic, but the pandemic made matters worse. We were at home on our screens. Then we'd take a break from our work-related screens to place ourselves in front of other screens of one sort or another. With the title of his new book, Pastor Jay Kim is calling us back to Analog Church, why we need real people, places, and things in the digital age. Jay Kim is a pastor in California Silicon Valley. He joined Brian Fraun and Stephen Coble on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life in Chicago.
3: Why did you write this book? Honestly, I wrote it sort of as a prayer. You know, the entire book is a prayer for me in many ways. I found myself like so many of us, sort of tethered and really addicted to my digital devices, really, I found myself sort of being formed in a particular way because of my digital proclivities and addictions. And I just realized, again, I think as many of us do at a certain point, I just realized this is not the sort of person I want to be. This is not the sort of person I think that God is calling me to be or to become. And so, man, I've got to find another path forward. You know, as I read Paul's words in his letter to the Galatians in chapter five, this really well-known, famous passage uh, about the fruit of the spirit. As I pondered those words, I realized the attributes or the characteristics of the fruit of the spirit they actually are in many ways the antidote to so much of what is happening in me because of uh, my engagement uh, with you know social media in particular but just digital realities generally speaking so uh, I wrote the book it's it 's not like uh, you know some sort of thesis against all things digital that's kind of a misunderstanding sure. people have about me sometimes but no I have a, a deep appreciation for digital technology I just think we have to be mindful of the ways that they are forming us and then be intentional about redirecting our lives in such a way that God, by his spirit, can form us into the people he's called us to be. So uh, there you go. That's why I wrote the book. Jay, my, my wife and I often have this conversation pr- pretty much centered around social
2: media. And I think for her, is looking at moms in their best mm-hmm. life and, you know, the things that they present yeah. and then her comparing and contrasting <laughs> herself to them. And, and then, like, you know, you get up on Sunday as a preacher and there's a construct that you're trying to dismantle and people sometimes aren't even aware of how it got there. And, and, and I think that what you're talking about us being formed by social media and in, in what ways, like what's some practical advice you would give to somebody who feels that uh, compelled? Like, man, I, I just I'm scrolling and I just find myself back sucked into this uh, Instagram world and comparing and contrasting myself to other people.
3: Yeah, what a great question. I'm with you. I Like, I could totally relate, you know, to, to your wife's experience. For me, what I felt was uh, the comparison loop, and it is a loop. It's just never ending. Mm-hmm. We compare as quickly as our thumbs can scroll. I found myself spiraling into the vortex of the comparison loop. And dangerously, what it began doing in me is it began breeding contempt in me. Like, I started mm-hmm. feeling contempt toward people Not because of anything they had actually done to me, but because of uh, what I was projecting on them based on the sort of glossy filtered images of their very well curated social media lives. And the hypocrisy in it was I was doing the same exact thing, you know, trying to put up this sort of glossed up version of my life on Instagram or, or some brilliant thought I think I have on Twitter, hoping for, um, the sort of confirmation or affirmation that comes with the little hearts, you know, that, and the likes <laughs> of the retweets and all of that. So comparison led to contempt, and then I found myself just deep, deep in what I would call self-centric despair. I just found myself sort of at the end of myself looking for meaning and purpose and significance in a place that really doesn't offer that, you know? It offers a sort of a a thinly veiled version of that, but, but you unpack it and you realize the little dopamine hits you get when somebody presses the like button or retweets or reshares, it's gone as instantly as it comes, you know, so. In terms of practically, you know, if that is true, then I think, again, I'm not arguing for throwing away digital devices uh, or completely shutting down digital technology or social media. Although if that's what you're called to do, I think that's actually quite wonderful. What I am saying is that I think we have to put these things in their rightful place. You know, where we spend our time, uh, what we give our energy and our resources to, what consumes our thoughts, you know, that's the stuff we worship, Right. You know, we look back on the story of the Exodus and the Israelites creating this golden calf out of golden earrings. And we think, man, how could they have possibly have done that? You know, it's like so archaic, so barbaric, how dumb of them. But the reality is we do that all the time. We craft and manufacture idols all the time. They just look differently in our day and age. And to break out of that rhythm, that tendency, we have to be really intentional. So practically, I would say, I think practicing digital Sabbaths is really important. You know, Andy Crouch in his book, uh, The TechWise Family suggests, you know, one hour a day, One day a week, one week a year, you know, is there one hour a day? And then is there one day a week? And then is there one week a year where you can completely shut off and be completely disconnected from social media, email and text and digital uh, devices altogether? There's lots of other things, but that's one practical suggestion I would make. I practiced that in my life and it's been transformative. I don't have any notifications on my phone. So if you like something on my social media, I don't know about it until I open social media. I also don't have social media on my phone. So those are a few suggestions I would have. They're really, It's not easy, but um, it, it can be transformative. Last question. Let me ask
5: you an important one. I've got teenagers in my house, 18, 14, and 13. So we're
3: in the midst of this, the Snapchats yeah. and the Instagrams and this and that. What's a word of wisdom or advice you'd give to parents, like especially in my situation, because our kids are so connected like yeah. that is beyond what we are. So what what's a word of advice to parents out there? I would say, first and foremost, your kids need to know that you are for them and that you love them. So the reason for you pushing them away from social media is not because uh, you're like an old curmudgeon who just, you know, is afraid of social media, but rather that you um, believe there is the possibility of a more meaningful and rich life. And um, I would also suggest going on that journey with them. You know, if, if we as parents are constantly on social media, but ask our children not to be, that's hypocrisy. So we need to model, you know, what that looks like. I think creating a culture at home where digital devices have a particular place, and I mean that in a very literal way. So I'm a strong believer that digital devices don't belong in communal spaces, in places of rest and Sabbath. So for us, our phones stay in our kitchen, Uh, not not even our dining room, our kitchen, like our docking station is in our kitchen. Our digital devices don't enter our bedrooms or our family room or our living room where we spend time together as a family. They never have a place at our dining table. So when we eat together, it's a long extended meal at the table, untethered from the digital world so that we can be fully embodied with one another. So yeah, one, I think we need to let them know that this is out of love for them and for us. Two, I think we need to journey alongside them by embodying and living up to what we're asking them to do. And three, I think digital devices in the home need a physical place and and they're to be put in that place.
0: Coming up, the impact of social media on our mental health. How do
6: I put the guardrails back in my life to keep this healthy? And who's
0: controlling what? Is it controlling you or are you controlling it? When the Christian
5: Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to Daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's Daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's Daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the
0: Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. The pace and the negativity of the news cycle can be, well, overwhelming. If you're like an ever-growing percentage of the population, social media in its various forms is a key source for news and information and how we sort through the news. It's not surprising that social media is leaving more and more Americans depressed. Gregory Jantz, author of Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age, joined my colleague here in the Pacific Northwest, Tim Gatos from AM820, The Word, in Seattle.
3: It's in the news all the time about Facebook and Twitter and how, you know, their algorithms are working and what's becoming known about how they're essentially working against us as humans. I mean, it's it's frightening to see kind of behind the scenes and we're only seeing partially what's going on. What are you seeing, doctor?
6: Well, there is a lot going on. And one of the things is the information coming to us is absolutely filtered and controlled and manipulated. Uh, no doubt about that. I think we're discovering more and more of this, and there's more to come to light. And what we know is social media can get a real stronghold in a person's life, by the way. <laughs> uh, you take kids, you take adults. But during this last oh few years now, uh, pandemic or whatever we want to g- g- call this time we've been in, people have turned to the digital world. and And now they've stayed in the digital world at a higher level than ever before. And so social media is where I get my news. It's where my relationships are. And social media has a way of distorting reality. So there's a lot we can talk about what's going on, but how is it affecting people? Well, there's some good parallels and correlations between social media use and how I'm using it and depression and anxiety levels.
3: Hmm. How do you see this i I guess on the ground level, what is the the data the I'm sure there there's a lot of anecdotal information, a lot of statistical information that that shows this. how do you go about diagnosing this
6: right well, one of the things is if I'm already on the edge and maybe I've been struggling with uh, some depression and i'm I'm going to social media maybe for connection for affirmation, and there's a lot of things that can hook me in. And I I can go down a lot of bunny trails, but here's what happens. I get oversaturated with too much information. And that too much information begins to kind of put me in an overwhelmed state. And uh, there are those uh, who have, uh, through the time we're in, have kind of had, we'll call it a, a break from reality where they don't know what to believe anymore. And that's what's happening. Uh, There's a lot of confusion. uh, And we know that um, there are some good studies, by the way, about depression and social media use. Mm. What we know is the more you're isolated to social media, the more if you have a tendency already to struggle with some depression, the more that goes up.
3: Doctor, I wanted to ask, what do you do at the center when it comes to this whole concept of the digital side of things, the devices that are brought in by clients? And how does this work practically at the center?
6: Oh, sure. Good question, Tim. This is very interesting for us to deal with. We don't want people to be distracted from the work they need to be doing while they're with us. So we're a place where people come for depression, anxiety, maybe addiction, and they're with us for a while. So they're staying here. So upon admissions, we have them check in any device that has a screen. That makes it real simple. Kind of covers any anything has a screen. We're going to check it in. We put it in a safe and it's initially for 72 hours. Now, there are those that really do have what I'll call digital addiction. They, by that third day uh, of not getting to their device, they are irritable, heart rates up, sweaty palms, headache, etc. cetera, hmm. because uh, they're having kind of mild uh, withdrawal symptoms mm-hmm. from their technology. So there really is, I've seen it firsthand, uh, physiological response when I'm oversaturated and I need to detox from my technology. So we see people detox. Now, they do usually want their device back. You know, maybe we have different rules for that. Maybe on Saturday you can check it out, you need to do some things and you turn it back in. Well, the first week people do. They say, okay, yeah, I'd like to have my device on Saturday and they check it back in. And sometimes that can be really upsetting. They're, they get involved in something they shouldn't, and it, it really, uh, you know, how it can throw things off. But by week two, and I'm making a, some general statements, by week two, they go, you know what, I, I don't think I want to check out my cell phone. Uh, I'm, I'm doing fine. Hmm. And, and they're starting to discover something called emotional freedom. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> it's like I just got untethered from it. This feels good. I'm feeling good now. I went through detox. And I'm feeling good now. And really is when I have a real, because we all have a relationship with technology. How do I put the guardrails back in my life to keep this healthy? Uh, And who's controlling what? Is it controlling you or or are you controlling it?
0: Coming up, anger in our nation.
7: If you're going to be denounced as subhuman for disagreeing with anything that Stands in the form of enforced doctrine
5: by the governing party.
0: When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us.
5: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences to understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics and to test them quantitatively requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu/spp. That's pepperdine.edu/spp.
0: Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Political polarization, a growing coarseness in our dialogue, and anger seem to mark our nation today. We see it in the news, and we see it in our communities and even in our families. It may feel like politics is at the root of it all, but our next guest argues that politics are really the fruit of what began some time ago. I enjoyed my enlightening conversation with Peter Wood, author of the new book titled Wrath, America Enraged.
7: After World War II, things began to come apart. Uh, I think in two ways. One was that's when Americans really began to discover uh, Freudian psychoanalysis with the idea that if you repress your anger, it will come back at you in the form of neurosis. So it was more healthy mentally to let it all out. And The other was the importation from Europe after the war of uh, existentialism and an idea that to have an authentic life, you had to be in touch with your darkest emotions and let them out. So those two things were circulating at around the same time in the early 1950s, uh, mostly on the the coastal elites, but gradually they spread throughout the rest of society. Uh, it's a long story. I won't try to tell it on this uh, interview, but I think what you see happening is that the, um, The licensing of anger, this new Mm -hmm. form of uh, individualism, um, gains ground because it proves to be such a useful tool for protest. Uh, People begin to understand that uh, being angry empowers them and excites other people. Anger becomes something of a spectator sport. And that's one of the first places we really see it is that uh, sports, which used to be governed by codes of sportsmanship, suddenly become Uh, in places where people swear and brawl, and uh, it it turns out to be one way in which you can make anger into something that is both uh, more lived experience and less controlled. Um, We saw it happening in our uh, mass media, our movies, even in our music, uh, and angrification takes place. I don't see now how you can create A meaningful compromise between people who want the country to have no borders and people who want the borders to be enforced, or uh, people who believe that um, a woman's right to choose trumps everything and people who think that the right to life trumps everything. Those are not matters to be settled by a a handshake. Um, We have a Uh, A world right now in which uh, the division between those who think the uh, 2020 election was stolen and those who call that the big lie uh, can't really even talk about it. It's boiling mad at the other. Uh, once the uh, opposing idea is put on the table.
0: I wanted to ask, progressive elites are stoking rage on a range of issues from anti-racism, critical race theory, uh, efforts to erase American history, the 1619 Project, one example, um, uh, unfettered illegal immigration, the COVID pandemic response, new voter rights uh, comparisons. What are the risks of losing emotional self-control and the consequences of a culture that indulges too freely in the Celebration of anger. And what kind of threat does that pose to the republic? Well, that's
7: a, a hefty question. I would say that all the things you're talking about are backed up with emotional rage. If you try to engage in reasoned argument with somebody who holds the positions that you just listed, uh, you don't get reasoned argument in return. Uh, what you get is a kind of denunciation. Uh, you're a racist, you're a xenophobe, you're a homophobe, you're, you're some kind of a person whose uh, own views are reduced to a pathological, psychological state. Um, so what do you get when you license anger to be the tool by which you proceed through disagreements with other people? Uh, well, what you don't get is argument. What you do get Is a uh, effort to write the person uh, out of the conversation altogether. Uh, The result of that on the political scale means that tens of millions of people are denied the right to participate in their own government. The uh, the idea of consent of the governed which is intrinsic to our Republic uh, disappears because the governed in this case can only be controlled or suppressed. Um, Now We're talking about about a big range of issues. Each of those things is sort of compacted into an ideology in which the uh, view is that social justice or so-called social justice lies on one side. And on the other side, there only uh, is this uh, category of uh, the ignorant, the uh, deplorable, uh, those who gravitate towards uh, fascist dictatorship, Um, terms of abuse that don't really describe what anybody believes at all. Um, Since it's extremely difficult to find anybody who's an actual racist, we have this new concept of systemic racism, which can be applied across the board, regardless of what a person really believes or stands Mm -hmm. for. Um, That is a kind of pollution of the world of uh, a, a democratic polity. You can't really engage in politics if you're going to be denounced as subhuman for uh, disagreeing with anything that stands in the form of enforced doctrine by the governing party. Well, I'm saying the governing party, uh, of course, can change, Mm -hmm. and uh, we are now in this situation where we face uh, a... A government that, in my view, was elected by, let's say, mischief, uh, actions taken that didn't fully comport with the rule of law, has brought in um, President Biden and Vice President Harris. Uh, They have been able to use the levers of government to advance the kinds of policies you're talking about. All that sort of thing rankles, but if you try to express it in Uh, the mainstream media in America, uh, you will find yourself not just cut down in that act, but perhaps prohibited from appearing anywhere else. We have the incredibly powerful things like Facebook and Twitter, which seem to have a, a capacity to say, you don't exist. If we disagree with you, we will prohibit you from expressing any views at all on our platform. And since all the platforms interlock with one another, It really creates a a class of non-citizens.
0: Coming up, a place between giving in to anger and giving up on conviction.
7: I do encourage them to be thoughtfully forceful in maintaining uh, their opinions against peer pressure.
0: More with Peter Wood when The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. When we hear of a scholar writing on the negative impact of anger on the nation, we might conclude that we need to back down, so to speak, in our convictions to go silent on what we really believe. However, Peter Wood argues that you can engage the angry without responding in anger. Let's listen to a few more minutes with Peter Wood, author of Wrath, America Enraged. What encouragement can you give our listeners as our time is ticking away, um, who recognize and will immediately recognize what you write about in the book, but want to to do something different, to be constructive, to perhaps move the republic in a direction that's more uh, more constructive and favorable to a future.
7: Well, I took heart from the uh, school board elections and state elections that occurred this month, especially in Virginia, but also in New Jersey, here where I am in New York, where there was a real sign that uh, the public is sufficiently fed up to push back against this. That's one thing. When I see people resisting, as in uh, air traffic controllers or airline pilots, or in, in, again in New York, it's been nurses and doctors and uh, firefighters and policemen who have uh, put some brakes on this. Whatever we do for a living, we have some opportunity to exert ourselves beyond just our individual choices, and to influence other people. Maybe the hardest thing of all to do is is to bring this into um, your actual community, your friends, Mm -hmm. uh, relations, uh, people that you go to church with. Um, I'm in the midst of that now, and I I live in a a deep uh, blue part of uh, New York City. I'm in Upper West Side. I'm surrounded by people who... uh, strongly disagree with my every opinion. Um, And yet I try to pick my way through that by showing people that uh, I can disagree with them without becoming a monster. Um, But I don't want to give up my right to dissent. And I think that that's a hard choice that we each have to make individually about where you're going to dissent and how you're going to do it. Um, And sometimes the results are just not very nice. You lose friends or in, in one of my cases, a community a group at church just broke up uh, because people couldn't stand of uh, knowing, just knowing, not even expressing that others held different views.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: I think it's important that that kind of thing actually happen. that you don't live in fear of it happening to the point where you begin to compromise away your right to self-expression. Yeah. Um, I don't encourage people to be antagonistic. I do encourage them to be um, thoughtfully forceful in maintaining uh, their opinions against peer pressure.
0: Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. There's more to my conversation with Peter Wood, and you can hear the full interview at ChristianOutlook.com. While you're at our site, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Charlie Richards, David Pouchon, Mike Cook, Alex Perez, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.